Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, darkness fans, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have Dr. Taylor Stone. He is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Science and Ethics, the University of Bonn in Germany. He studied architecture and worked in the environmental nonprofit sector before completing a PhD in Ethics of Technology at Delft University of Technology. His research focuses on the ethics of urban lighting, interesting topic for us, and what it means to value and ultimately design for darkness. Taylor's writing has appeared in a variety of academic journals, and in 2019, he received a recognition award for research from the Professional Lighting Design Convention, PLD-C. We got lots of acronyms out there, and if you're interested in acronyms, you can take LS Evolve, which is, we have an alphabet soup module in that, so there's lots of different acronyms in there if you want to know them better. We're going to post his social media, so you can follow him on LinkedIn, on the Restoring Darkness podcast page, but for right now... Dr. Taylor Stone, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, this show had a different name in the past, and we changed it. And um, the reason why was the, the board of directors um, had felt that we had covered the ethical, uh, not the ethical case, but the sort of pain and suffering caused by light pollution mm. quite well. And that for humans, for wildlife, for spiritual reasons, and all this sort of stuff. And we wanted to move towards this idea of if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about restoring and preserving darkness using lighting technologies. And that you seem to be a perfect guest for that. Tell us why. Um, yeah, well, I'm very excited to be here again. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I work in uh, the field of applied ethics. So I work in ethics of technology as well as environmental ethics. Um, and a lot of this field of applied ethics has sort of, you can see it as having two levels, right? It has this theoretical aim. Uh, so this sort of questioning about why things are good and bad. What, what is the underlying ideas and values that, that we're talking about here, as well as a practical aim? So what, are, what is the decision procedure we go through to reach uh, solutions? for these problems, for these ethical problems and dilemmas. Uh, and so a lot of what I do is trying to take some of this ethical theory uh, and apply it to this problem of light pollution uh, and specifically 
try to flip it a bit and ask, what does it actually mean to value darkness? How can we define darkness as something of value? And then what does it mean to actually design for these values? So how can we translate these into actionable design requirements? Uh, and what does it mean then to design for darkness and specifically design for darkness in our urban spaces? I think from my perspective, the first question I have for you would be, um, why ethics? Um, how does ethics apply to the practice of lighting design or uh, the lighting professions? How would how would we that be integrated? Is there a and is there a particular person whose work you're building upon? Yeah, a great uh, question. I mean, in a sense, it was really interesting to me, and part of the reason I got into this topic um, was. Well, like many people starting to pay attention to just the amount of artificial light we have in our world, right? And once I think this is a common uh, theme probably for a lot of people who are on this podcast and a lot of listeners, that once you see this and you start to pay attention to it and you sort of, this sort of shift in perspective, right? Normally we sort of go through our cities at night without seeing it. Um, and you sort of only notice it when there's a blackout or something goes wrong or, or big events or otherwise. Um, but once you, you have this sort of switch and you start to see and realize just this ubiquity and, and the abundance and proliferation of this artificial light that we've created and these spaces we have, it, it's really hard um, to unsee this in a sense, right? And so starting to ask, okay, well, what's, is this something we really want? What are the good and what, and what, is, what are the effects? What are the negative effects? And, and what are the positive aspects that this can bring? And, and for me, this is, this is a deeply ethical question too, right? How much light do we have, should we have and why? And how can we navigate certain value trade-offs? And so when I got into this topic, it was also really interesting to me coming at it from the perspective of applied ethics. And as I said, environmental ethics and the ethics of technology that aside from a few papers, there wasn't a lot really written about it within these fields. It, it wasn't paid attention to so much. Of course, once I got into the topic, I realized that actually a lot of people are talking about the ethical issues. They're just not necessarily from these academic fields, right? A lot of, I mean, the International Dark Sky Association, which was founded largely by astronomers, right? These, these mm -hmm. are people that are paying attention to this as an ethical, as a moral, as an aesthetic, as a cultural problem and something that we need to address. So in my view, the questions of light pollution and how much we should have and how we value, uh, navigate these sort of questions is a deeply ethical problem and something that some of the ideas from applied ethics can assist with. And, you know, in particular, thinking about design and lighting design as a value laden process, right? So why ethics? Well, a lot of what we do and what I do and, and what I work on is from this field that we discuss and call value sensitive design or designing for values. Um, and so this sort of idea underlying this is that our technologies are value laden so they can foster or hinder certain moral, social, environmental values that we have. And I think it's, it's pretty easy and quick to see that lighting design is no exception to this. You know, all of our lighting design has at its core some value level um, drive or, or push to it, right? Whether We're doing it's just it for efficiency. some reason, 
Exactly, you know, right? I, yeah. I think, you know, um, in, in like I'm not a, a, any way a, a academic about this, but my understanding of, of ethics is, is to ask why we are doing things the way we are doing them. Is that mm -hmm. a fair um, sort of, uh, you know, whatever, um, layman analysis of it? <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. I mean, within ethics, of course, different uh, ethicists debate quite a bit, right, too, about mm. and, and have different theories. But yeah, as I said, at its core, I see it as having these two levels, right? This theoretical aim of really questioning why. So what, what do we mean when we say something is good or bad or right or wrong? Uh, but also helping and assisting with these practical endeavors. So providing us with some guidance and some sort of decision procedure uh, to evaluate these choices that, we're, that we need to make. And, and, you know, a lot of, I think, ethical decisions, and even if you look at something like lighting design, I would say there's a lot of more common sense solutions, right, um, that, that we can draw from and, and, and utilize. Uh, but where it becomes more tricky is when you get into these more complex ethical dilemmas and or value trade-offs. So how okay, we navigate that, these in our urban nightscapes, for example. I want to get into the value trade-offs because I think that's very pertinent. But before we do, first question, is light pollution actually pollution in your mind? Uh, yeah. So this or is, is it a something metaphor? I, <laughs> is it a yeah, metaphor? Yeah. So this is something I've, I've written about. I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, so first of all, I should say that, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit critical of the term and the concept of light pollution in my research uh, and sort of advocate that we should flip it a little bit and instead of talking about why lighting is bad, talk about what is good about darkness, right? And how we can okay. value this. Um, but I, I mean, but that said, I think that it is still a powerful metaphor and idea to think about light or certain aspects of light as polluting the environment. Uh, and in that sense, it has helped to really reframe and rethink uh, what lighting is doing. And, and again, what these ethical uh, issues are related to uh, this abundance of artificially created illumination that we now have. So before we move to the value trade-offs, I want to ask you, what ethical principles are at play here? Like mm -hmm. ethics, one is it ethics 101? You know, is it, or, you know, can we... Like, is there certain principles that are at play here that we can define for the audience? Yeah. So for my research, I mean, you can think about ethics as having sort of two approaches. One is this sort of very applied approach, right? So it's maybe the more classical philosopher. You go into a room for 10 years, you come up with this theory and you start applying it to different problems, right? And lighting mm -hmm. is just one. Uh, but you can also take a more engaged approach where you start with the problem itself and build out and, and sort of start to ask, okay, what are useful tools for this? Um, and this is more the approach that I take in my research. So I don't start with this sort of top down, uh, but rather mm -hmm. start with the problem itself uh, and use this to generate different ideas and different principles. Um, and for me, that really focused on actually trying to identify some of the underlying values and ideas that, that go into lighting and more specifically light pollution. Um, and then trying to define darkness as something of value or at least something through which or by which uh, value and specifically environmental values emerge. What is the value of darkness? Yeah. Well, yeah, I see 
so when I talk about darkness, I talk about it on three levels, actually. Um, and specifically in thinking about it as a guiding concept or a design requirement or some sort of a moral criterion to, to think through lighting. Uh, so on three levels, I say, uh, one, I think it is an evaluative tool. So we can use this when we think about our lighting um, as, as a, a set of values, right? Uh, and this is what we're just discussing. So you can break it down. And what I do in my research is sort of say, okay, what are these underlying ideas that, that come out of light pollution and then break down darkness uh, into nine different values that roughly map onto uh, the different areas uh, where light pollution has an impact and where presumably darkness can have a positive impact, uh, specifically environmental and ecological impacts. What are those nine values? Uh, yeah, so they are uh, efficiency, sustainability, healthiness, happiness, ecological conservation, a connection to nature, stellar visibility, heritage and tradition, and wonder and beauty, or a sense of the sublime and awe. Sense of the sublime and awe. Yeah. Okay, you rolled through those fast. Okay, but so, um, <laughs> so, so efficiency. So, so you. Yeah. So let let let's. So let me. I'm going to counteract that before sure. we get into those because I want to go through each one of those individually. I think that's the best track here to take. But the 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 opposing value, and perhaps what you know in the last two years with all we've been through has become the overriding value which cancels everything out is the principle of safety. Mm -hmm. That safety is the most important thing. And we even coined like, a, I don't know if in Europe they use it, but there was for a while there was this expression to, to end a conversation with stay safe. Hmm. And, and, you know, I, I always was kind of a little bit, I, I want to stay dangerous a little bit. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to stay safe. I want right. to live a little closer to the edge um, and, and see what's out there and, and experience hmm. life and taste things and, and move forward. So I have, a, I take issue with safety being our highest mm. value. And I think safety in the darkness realm is in direct contradiction to beauty. Um, mm. I, I think that darkness is beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. and if we elevates this idea of safety and I've had people on the other podcast where, you know, they make straight up research claims that more light is more safety. And mm. we've researched it and we know this. And so the keyhole to keyhole in Southside right. Chicago is what we're going for. And I'm not sure that, that, you know, that has been fleshed out totally. I don't mm. know that, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if they were researching a specific kind of crime, um, mm. how that study was done and whether or not it's actually definitive or not. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about how you can weigh some of your principles against that very mm -hmm. strong value of safety. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and th this, yeah. And I mean, I think if you look at even the history of nighttime lighting and public lighting, safety is uh, one of the primary driving values and ideas. And and even if you look at the origins of uh, electric lighting, it's really closely intertwined with the formalization of police forces, right? Mm -hmm. There's this famous quote from uh, the New York City, I believe, police uh, officer uh, when electric lighting was just being installed, where he said every, every light pole erected means a police officer removed from the city, right? <laughs> um, and so I think it's important to remember that 
uh, lighting carries this really uh, deeply inherited and intertwined symbolism, right? That we see it as safe, right? Um, yeah, there are there are studies. We also that say, see it as good. Absolutely, and this Christ, is, Christ longer, is the light of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Right, and these are even longer inherited symbolisms, right? That lighting is somehow a source of good, a source of knowledge, uh, and darkness is somehow antithetical to this, right? But I think so that's when. But symbols, that I yeah. think that comes from a time when art, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if artificial light or, or not electric light, but um, non-sun generated or moon generated light was something that was very difficult to achieve. It was fire-based, and so those ideas are based on the principles of burning wood or oil, and so it was a rare, it was very difficult to generate light at night, and so because of its um, rarity, it became a symbol of, um, you know, goodness, and at night we, we draw into the fire for community and for safety, where mm -hmm. the animals stay at bay and whatever. But now we find ourselves in Jevon's paradox where it's so yeah. cheap and easy for us to create artificial light at night or electric light at night mm -hmm. that, th that we need to overcome that mm -hmm. in, in maybe it's a primordial desire for it or something that we have. Do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, what I would say too, and to go back to the original sort of question about how this aligns is this is i think there is a lot of interesting research in, in looking at this, this sort of history and in, in the in the symbolism of light uh, as it has evolved in, in, in its relation to darkness um and why we should why we do see it and so it's so closely tied to feelings uh, of safety and yeah and but to, i would say there are these studies as you mentioned that that then make these links or these correlations there are other studies that try to contest these uh as well right and sort of say that lighting doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the place is safer uh or tries to criticize exactly what is meant by that um but what i would say is undeniable is that in large part uh people do feel safer in lit areas Right? And then to me, this becomes a primary design challenge as well, is that if we can understand that feelings of safety are increased in certain types of light uh, or in illuminated spaces, uh, this is then the, the design challenge. How can we still foster these feelings? Well, also not just, you know, shining a spotlight over the whole, the whole city or the whole parking lot or otherwise. Uh, and then how can we bring in these values of darkness uh, into our lighting policies and into our lighting design choices? Uh, and as a starting point, to think about this then as the design challenge and how we frame our problems, right? So not just to see this as, okay, we can either have safety or we can have darkness. So we can either have safety or sustainability or, or however mm -hmm. you want to set it off. up. It's an exactly, either or rather, rather than a compromise. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so how do we navigate such a value trade-off? And I think the first step is to actually look at how we're framing the, this problem as, and even seeing these as being in opposition, uh, which also re requires us to actually break down. So as I said, a lot of my research is going through the, what it means to value darkness and how we can break down these different values, which I listed very quickly, uh, <laughs> as well as... Uh, but we can do the same for safety, right? And sort of mm -hmm. say safety is a very general term, a very general concept to feel safe, to feel, or even security. But what do we actually mean by that? 
in different spaces and different contexts. I think we mean about we're. I think what we're talking about is how people feel. I think like yeah. when you say you know um, we're going to light up uh, you know Southside Chicago mm-hmm. like a prison yard. Okay, which is a good mm-hmm. a, a good kind of analogy of how they think about it, right? The more mm-hmm. light, it's kind of, in a way, it, it, you know, it is intimidating in some ways mm-hmm. to uh, certain people, you know. Um, but you know, if we look mm-hmm. at it from that perspective, that the either or, we either have safety or we have danger, and uh-huh. this Manichaean thinking, good versus evil, I think is the fundamental problem at play here. Mm-hmm. That it's not an either or. And yeah. more work is required. Yeah. And so, exactly. And so, for example, one project I was involved in over the last few years was looking at and coming up with a, a design concept for a, a park in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up in this working with a lighting design firm called Atelier L.E.K., which is led by Iris Dijkstra, their uh, Rotterdam-based uh, lighting design firm, but also very interested in this in these questions of ecological lighting, what it means to bring darkness back into cities. So we designers and ethicists, we sort of came together uh, and, and had this opportunity to collaborate. But one of our first steps um, was to then approach it as, as we're discussing it right now, because we, we had this sort of uh, project and this commission to come up with the plan. Uh, but it started as this, as we're discussing the, what's these sort of uh, reduced to these two opposing or contradicting ideas that they wanted to keep the darkness in the park because they wanted to preserve the ecological integrity. Uh, it's one of the few, it was one of the few sort of unlit spaces in the area. Mm. They knew it was used by bats and so on. Um, but they also had recognized through the users that improved lighting was one of their priorities. So they saw this, okay, it's unsafe, we need to add lighting. And so our first step was to look at this both at a conceptual level, but also through a site analysis and stakeholder analysis level and sort of say, okay, what do we actually mean by preserving the darkness in the site? And what do we mean by safety? Which was a really interesting (laughs) uh, exercise conceptually as well as discussing because yeah, you, you sort of get you get down to the core ideas. And what we realized is that we were talking about two different things. One we were talking about, as you said, the feeling of safety. So social safety or ideas of reassurance. Why? Uh, okay, this is very Dutch, but uh, it was a bike path uh, for kids to go to their uh, sports practices. It was unlit. It was a neglected space. It wasn't, you know, it was cut off from the city by highways. So it wasn't seen as a particularly... Uh, good place to be. Of course, there were some petty crimes, as any. There's some graffiti's where people go to do some drugs or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't a lot of crime there. But it didn't feel like a safe place. So mm-hmm. this was one problem. Uh, and then the second was actually just wayfinding or routing. Right. Again, if, uh, as the city had developed around Delft in the Netherlands, this park became a commuter path. So people were biking uh, through the dark at night and there's just some practical necessities uh, to, to see the path, to see debris on the road as you're biking at night and so on. And so we were able to break it down, what was actually meant by safety in this site um, and, and define, okay, we're actually talking about reassurance or social safety of which lighting can help, but some of these things are also outside the scope of what lighting can do, as well as just wayfinding and routing for the site. Uh, and then also just identify, okay, we're actually not talking about this whole 
park, we're talking about a few specific paths, a few specific areas, right? This commuter path that goes through the park, this highway underpass, uh, and, and, you know, a few specific paths. And through this, we were able to, I think, really understand what was meant by safety and then start to put that into conversation with this idea, okay, if we have if we really want to preserve darkness and we can also identify which values are most important here in terms of sustainability, ecological conservation, then what solutions are out there that could actually, in principle, achieve both of these um, and, and, and in a sense come up with a, an, an innovative solution that works around this idea of a value conflict or a moral overload. It's also been called where you're trying to satisfy these two things at once and rather see them not as conflicting, but um, but they can be achieved if you if you really break down what is meant. What was the solution? Yeah, and so this is still in the concept phase. It is still mm -hmm. it is moving forward with a few different uh, student projects and so on. I mean, it, it's quite a big park, and and so. I think it'll take a bit of time if, if this is realized. But our solution was actually um, a bit of a piecemeal one. So we came up with this idea and developed what we call dark acupuncture, uh, which is from an urban planning theory called urban acupuncture, uh, which is a lot like what it sounds that a few different pinpricks of a service or amenity or otherwise can stimulate a process of renewal. Uh, so rather than being this sort of top-down approach to playing the whole park, we instead said, okay, what are, where are these moments where we can actually make an impact, right? So again, in identifying these values and through the site analysis and stakeholder analysis, identifying, okay, what are these, what are the problem areas or what are the hot spots in the park? Um, and so what we did was we identified these, these values and spots and then came up with actually a series of solutions that were more tailored to the individual spots. So some and we proposed you could have dynamic and adaptive lighting along certain pathways, uh, for example, along the commuter pathways. Um, but some were outside the scope of lighting as well. Because as we discussed, so there's this problem of reassurance and feelings of safety in this highway underpass. Uh, but there's also already high contrast, right? As it often happens, you know, they just, you know, there's just these bright lights on the underpass. Uh, so, you know, during the day, it, there's, it's, it's dark and outside is light. At night, it's dark and it's just like, you know, you're going into like a, a subway terminal or something, right? Where you're just sure. like, in the light. Um, and so a little bit of lighting, but also rather see this as a space that, that uh, where some programs or urban renewal could take place. Um, and so it can, in doing that, perhaps you could circumvent the, these sort of feelings uh, of unsafety and, and the feelings of neglect that the space has. So in a sense, it was a series of different solutions that were really meant to be these sort of pinpricks along the site and in these problem areas. The Was any photoluminescent stripping considered? Because um, what, one of the things I, I've noticed before the, when I, so I have 20 years, 22 years in the lighting business now. Mm -hmm. and I, And the dark sky movement was gaining momentum in sort of 2005, six, seven, it was starting to creep into my order desk and my showroom. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I'm not kidding. It was like yeah. cut off wall packs were coming out with the mm. IDA symbol on the side. And then led yeah. just bulldozed all that. It came in only mm. thing. The only value we have is lumens per watt. Mm. 
Like that's Correct. what came in and bulldozed all other values in lighting, including flicker. And, like there's a whole host of problems that LED lighting systems reintroduced that have been solved by the lighting industry over decades. Um, but one of the things that was coming up that was super interesting at that point, which I haven't seen reemerge, was the idea of photoluminescent strips where they, and this was used for emergencies inside so that, you know, it would be charged by the electric light. And so then yep. the stairwells in an emergency on the handrail, you'd, you'd see the handrail in the darkness and nothing mm -hmm. charges photoluminescence like the sun. And mm -hmm. so the longest charge it can get is outside in, with, did you guys consider any of that for the project in the park? Yeah, we discussed it and looking through specifically some of the, this pathway lighting and this routing, what are what are sort of ways that are minimally invasive as well to the ecology that can serve this function of, of illuminating the path mm -hmm. uh, or providing some wayfinding direction um, without just sort of abundant light or without defaulting to some big street lights along. So the, these were definitely considered um, and discussed yeah it, but as i said it was more in a concept phase so we had proposed where i was in the project it was more proposing okay this is something that needs to be considered is a sort of uh, minimally intrusive ideally dynamic or adaptive or or otherwise lighting along the path that focuses on uh wayfinding and routing itself of which that could be one solution uh, but it hasn't progressed to the solution stage at this point or to the sort of uh, 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 more detailed master plan in which there are specific luminaires and design specifications included. But I think that that's one direction that could be taken. Absolutely. I want to conquer one more topic before we kind of go a little bit slower through those. Um, values. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I, I want to tell you a little anecdote. I can't remember if it was when I was a student at university on a tour if, or, or if I was happening to tour a campus, but it was many years ago, maybe a decade or more, maybe two decades. But I remember going to a university campus and walking around the campus and being, having it pointed out to me that these are blue light emergency access panels. Mm. And you have a bunch of students there. And in case someone attacks you, there is one of these, um, you know, blue things here that you can run to and push the button and the security campus police will come. I think it was at my university and this is in the late 90s. And I was thinking to myself in the memory of this and doing the darkness show, that created the kind of fear that was actually more fear, created more fear, like mm. telling people about that. And then I remember that there was, there hadn't been a case where somebody had been attacked openly on the street at this university. Mm -hmm. And this was predated the introduction of these, this blue light system or whatever. And I'm wondering if the fear is created by the systems or if this, the systems mm -hmm. are actually solving a, a real problem. Do they ever get utilized? Have they saved anyone's life? You know what I'm saying? Or... I wonder about that to myself, like if in, in, cre in coming up with these great ideas, and I'm sure for the listeners, I'm putting up quotations, what we need is every 50 feet, we need a communication thing where someone can push a button and it's lit up and there's lights everywhere and you can push this button and the police will be there within two minutes. I'm wondering if we're actually perpetuating the fear itself in creating the measure, like 
over exaggerating it or making the the fear more acute for people and then it becomes like a more light more light more blue light boxes more 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 and it perpetuates itself irrationally um is that a dangerous topic to go down or (laughs) i mean to me i think there's something there's something perpetual about that 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 has some has some Mm -hmm. entropy to it or something yeah well i mean first i would say i'm not I don't know the stats about how effective yeah. these are and how and how useful they have been in different spaces. Um, I would hope they have uh, had some functions or or, or some usefulness if, if they are uh, installed. Um, I would say a few things that I would see with this to keep in mind. Um, one to sort of uh, agree with you, and two to to question this a little bit. Um, as well. So the one is, uh, had a really interesting conversation once years ago with the, the head of security on, on a university campus um, who said so explicitly when, when they're light cities, it, it is, as we discussed, it's not about safety per se, but about improving the feelings of safety, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which was very illuminating for me. To, sorry for the pun. Um, but it's really interesting to hear as I was early on in my PhD in research when I heard this. And this maybe also set me down this path of thinking, okay, what do we mean when we talk about making our nights safer? But to push back, I mean, we have to also remember that experience of the dark and experience of nights isn't a universally consistent phenomenon, right? Depending on who you are and where you are, it can feel less safe or unsafe. And I think we've all had that experience, right? We've had experiences in dark places at night where it's amazing, uh, you know, it's important, it's it's intimate, it's whatever. Um, it's a great experience. We're seeing the night sky, but there are also f- moments and spaces where you can feel unsafe, and this can be different for different people. Um, so I think we should also be careful not to fully abandon or, or fully sort of cast aside these sort of um, safety measures. Uh, as being totally uh, useless, as I said, it then becomes this sort of um, this sort of trade-off. But we can assess them can... for their efficacy, yeah. can we not? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, like, I it's sometimes it feels like this safety topic can be untouchable. Like you can't mm. go near in. You know, you'll have you'll have a conversation with someone, and they safety is the checkmate. Mm-hmm. It's because safety. Yeah. And you know, it's like, well, then we can't even talk about the effectiveness of this tool or that tool. And remember, these all carry with them costs that absolutely devour yeah. resources that maybe could be better applied in another area. And absolutely. And what I would say in, in these these spaces, I think, similar to this uh, example I'd given about the park in the Netherlands, what, what I would strongly suggest is, is really a, a more careful analysis of what is meant by safety. So what... What are the what are the risks? What are the feel the feelings uh, or, or the sort of the impacts on social safety or reassurance in these places? And yeah, is this the best solution? I mean, just empirically, yeah. Are these being used? Are these serving their purpose? And are there other solutions that are either lighting based or maybe it's not lighting based, but solutions that can improve uh, both the feelings of safe, safety and hopefully the actual safety of the space, so that people feel confident and comfortable to to walk through these spaces alone at night or whatever the ultimate goal is. But the other thing I was going to mention as well, uh, in terms of this sort, as you said, this sort of uh, run on effect that we have more and more, 
Mm-hmm. Right? There's this really nice idea that comes from ecology and, and some researchers and lighting have used it. Uh, that's called shifting baseline syndrome. So this idea hmm. that we we, current, we we constantly take our current state as being the accepted norm, and we sort of seem to have this sort of collective amnesia, personal or or social, about what happened before. And I think we often see that in our lighting, right? That our lights continue to get brighter and brighter. And as a result, we perceive anything less as being somehow dark in, in the negative sense of being, dark, of being unsafe or a place we don't want to go, even though it could still be many, many magnitudes brighter than uh, unlit night. Um, and so there can also be ways that we can think about how we can, in subtle and maybe um, not sort of confrontation ways, try to confront this shifting baseline we have and try to get back to uh, previous levels as as one st- as one uh, path forward. Yeah, the proliferation. I mean, the um, I, I spoke with Chris Kaiba a couple years mm-hmm. ago on this topic, and I think he's in Germany as well. And uh, he had yep. mentioned to me that the satellites that measure light pollution have trouble measuring over a certain Kelvin temperature. So they're mm. you know whatever configured or they're set to measure yeah. lower Kelvin temperatures of high pressure sodium. And they can't mm-hmm. see 5,000 Kelvin. So I, I would imagine that the, the problem is actually far worse mm-hmm. than we can even understand with light pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is this idea of, I, I've, I've brought it up a couple of times. And again, I sell light bulbs every day. So I'm not a researcher. <laughs> I'm not an academic. I just sell lighting every day. Mm-hmm. And it, very difficult to sell darkness to people. It's very, very mm-hmm. difficult. Um, and I've tried. Uh, the, um, is the idea of the <laughs> window effect so if you're at a at a party and you're inside Mm -hmm. the party and there's a big window and everyone's inside even if the lights are quite dimmed and people are dancing someone outside in the darkness can see that like a television screen okay Mm -hmm. but the people inside the building the the lighting lit lit Mm -hmm. space or in the lit area have no access to the dark space their eyes Mm -hmm. cannot see the dark space and so there's a this idea of lighting and contrast, which mm-hmm. may actually be creating a false sense of security or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, this idea where, you know, a police officer comes to your car at night to the window, he shines a flashlight in your eyes so he can see you and you can't see him or her. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of it, to create that contrast. Mm-hmm. Are we using these in the discussions that you talk about? Like, is that contrast being mm-hmm. discussed at all? Yeah, I think there, there's some research on this. And, and I mean, it's come up, I believe, I hope I'm not misrepresenting, but even in the sort of uh, iconic book, The End of Night by Paul Bogart, I think mm-hmm. he, he talks about this as well in this book. I hope I'm representing this correctly. Um, even if not essential reading, any, you know, if you're interested in lighting and darkness, you should read this book. But I believe, you know, it's mentioned in this as well, this idea that you know, we think that this abundance, that having a spotlight, security light means we safer. But when we have these poorly designed lighting that has high contrast, you create these dark zones, right? And you create this sort of this this, this two-way sort of uh, effect, right? That you can't really see outside the light. Uh, so you can't actually see what's beyond the light. So it's questionable if this is actually increasing uh, the safety and security of these spaces, which then can lead to this... The, the focus rather on quality of the lighting over the quantity that we have is the main focus. And the efficacy and, of it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So 
We're coming up. I always, I've had a, some trouble. I'm going too long. We want to keep it where you can, if you can believe it, we've almost spoke for 40 minutes already. Um, yeah. Why don't we finish with this? Go through each one of those values and just say a little bit about each one. Sure. Um, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So the idea of this, well, I can go through them. I might, I might deviate a bit to, to talk more about the, the, the idea of them and where, and where they come from. Mm -hmm. uh, and which ones I see is the most important to prioritize. Um, but yeah, I can go through them. Um, so the one was sort of, as I said, it was starting with these, these questions and these negative impacts, the adverse impacts of lighting, of artificial light. So where, where do these different areas that light pollution is seen to have a detrimental uh, effect? Um, and can we flip this and ask, okay, where can darkness actually have a positive effect? Um, and can we break this down again, again, getting into this sort of questions of ethics and values and think through how we can define um, and, and in a sense, prioritize and systematize these different values of darkness. Um, and so can we see some as being, you know, what we'd say instrumentally beneficial, right? So there are means to an end. So, this is this idea of things like uh, efficiency, right? Um, in principle, having darker spaces means we're using relatively less light, which means we're using relatively less energy, which means we're using uh, spending less money, right? So this has an mm -hmm. instrumental benefit. Darker spaces in principle can lead to a reduction in costs and energy usage. So more efficiency and more sustainability. Um, uh, but then we can also think about things that are more uh, intrinsic. So it, darkness can be seen as an end in itself, right? So we can break this down and think about, yeah, well, there are questions of our own health and well-being. So this sort of idea of healthiness and happiness, right? And where the links are to experiences of the night sky, but also the research emerging that different types of light can have negative uh, health consequences through prolonged exposure. Um, and relatedly, we can then think about questions of ecological conservation, right? Which I think we can see as an end in itself that things like habitat protection, nocturnal habitats, as well as biodiversity pre uh, preservation uh, are, are important goals and creating dark spaces, preserving these, promoting, pursuing darker spaces uh, can assist with this. Uh, and then finally, also thinking about uh the night sky as well right and this is where these these different uh values that the other four i was talking about about wonder and beauty or you could also call this the sublime access to the night sky itself questions of heritage and tradition uh, as well as this idea of a connection to nature right we um and and these can be seen as intrinsically valuable these are things that are important ends in themselves um, and things that can be considered that we don't often in things like green design, urban ecological restoration, and so on. We talk about greening cities. Now, we also sometimes talk about blue spaces in cities, but I would say it's important to also talk about the dark spaces in cities, right? So can we see darkening cities as a form of urban ecological restoration? So that it, and presumably, can it, can we, mm. how much of these values can we actually incorporate? Mm. And in my prioritization, I would say we should focus on the, these more intrinsically valuable aspects because we know we can have, as you, you talked about, you know, the Jevons paradox, you can have more efficient lighting. It doesn't necessarily lead to less uh, sky glow or, or otherwise, right? 
but presumably, if you focus on these intrinsic values, so things like eco ecological conservation, connection to nature, connection, uh, visibility of the night sky, through this, these more instrumental benefits of energy reduction um, and, and cost reductions should necessarily uh, follow as well. Uh, and so from my perspective, these are the things that should be taken into consideration and should be seen as uh, primary sort of design goals or design requirements for lighting policy and design, especially in uh, urban spaces. Hmm. So can you work faster? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like yeah. I, I, I feel like these these ideas, when you discuss them, they're. Um, there's we're still a ways away from making that full ethical case like we need there's more work to be done there's more um analysis um uh, maybe we need some more research um you know into because I, I, I who else did we speak to um another researcher had told us that you know berlin has 50 or or, or you know madrid has 50 mm -hmm. i can't remember which one it was has 50 percent less electric light at night than this other city and the crime statistics are identical between the mm -hmm. two european cities um mm -hmm. you know and so we know that there's there's an answer here it's nuanced it's difficult to put our fingers on it's um, the ROI thing is also another issue when you're selling lighting. Return on investment mm -hmm. is very difficult to outline for people. Um, mm -hmm. I think we need to we need more people in more countries working on this, particularly on the connection to nature, the sublime, and the heritage and tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm Canadian, so Canada is basically one big dark sky park. As soon as you go 150 <laughs> miles north of the U.S. border, okay, like there mm -hmm. you don't have to. I, there's a dark sky. Um, uh, reserve, uh, I don't know, two hours east of me. And I went to see the meteor shower in August there. But if you just kept driving north from there, you'd still be in the dark sky reserve pretty much. You know what I'm saying? So, but Canadians mm -hmm. seem to have this. Like when you talk to someone who grew up in Canada, went to summer camps and went up to Tomogamy or Northern Ontario or these different places, we all have this connection to that. It's not, you don't have to mm -hmm. describe it. But you speak to some people that lived in urban environments their whole life, they have no idea what you're talking about. They have no mm -hmm. concept of that. Can that can mm -hmm. that even be restored for people? I don't even know if it could be. Yeah. Well, first, I, I'm also Canadian, so I, oh, okay. I can relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had these experiences as well growing up, which I'm sure uh, influenced uh, where I ended up <laughs> yeah, sure. today. Um, but also in, in strong contrast to um, where I where I lived for for several years when I did my PhD in the city Delft, which is in the sort of uh, mid-southwest, South Holland is where it is, which is, mm -hmm. I believe, one of the brightest places in Europe, both, mm. both because it's densely populated, but also because uh, there are a lot of greenhouses there as well, mm. which made yeah. this park uh, study we, we looked at quite an interesting case of, mm. yeah, we had to really, I think, take a step back and say, what do we actually mean by darkness in such a place that, it, that already has so much uh, light pollution and is so bright at night? Right. And how can we make. Yeah. And so you have to get into these questions of, OK, we're trying to keep it relatively darker. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, I mean, in these urban spaces, is it possible? I mean. Yeah, but that's that's an open question. And that's, I think. In some, I think we have the technology. Um, research, I think it's there. I think it takes a bit of investment, a bit of courage as well uh, on this on the side of municipalities. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to come up with policies. I mean, 
we can see, I think it is possible to a degree in cities, but I would say, yeah, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is, I think, is, is you know, there's a lot of what I would say more baseline, almost common sense solutions at this point. You know, groups like the International Dark Sky Association, they have put out these, you know, these specific standards about shielding and so on. Um, and I think there are other things we could sort of agree, you know, do we need certain billboards on at 4 a.m. at night? I'm not sure that we do, right? There are these common sense and then there are these more innovative solutions that are emerging, right? So we, if we look at some of this intelligent smart systems and we have these adaptable dynamic lighting uh, possibilities, how can we use this to um, try and foster these dark spaces as well and turn down lights um, and then when we do this though and we and we talk about bringing darkness and dark skies back into our cities yeah in, indeed maybe yeah a pristine n night sky no, with no light yes. pollution okay sure. maybe that's shouldn't be our goal but it can be somewhere in between and i think we should also remember that you know in this one paper i have i talk about there are these two competing sublimes actually right there's the sort of astronomical sublime, this idea of seeing the night sky, that's this mm -hmm. amazing experience, right? This awe, mm -hmm. beauty, tradition, right? That, that we've all had when we've seen an, an actual unpolluted night sky, right? Um, but there's also, you can think about the sublime and the technological sublime. There's this historian of technology, David Nye, who talks about, yeah, the tech, the electrical sublime. And we should, for, you know, that that cities, when they were first illuminated, this was also this sort of sublime experience, right? This was this amazing sight. And we've also sort of lost that with the way, uh, with the ubiquity and the proliferation of our light, right? We've Now we've sort of washed out our cities rather than seeing it as this amazing uh, spectacle as well. So I think it's hmm. a question then of how we can recombine these and if we can find some sort of a middle way uh, that can both bring some darkness back into our cities and in doing so also sort of remind us of, you know, the the, the sort of sight of urban skylines, right? And hmm. not just wash them out, but see them as this amazing thing uh, through, you know, bringing some darkness back into the cities as well and looking at the relations between these. And as I said, what the quality of our lighting and lighting choices are. Because when you when you do experience and see really, I think good lighting design, which you've seen, you know, we can we can really appreciate that it can it is quite beautiful, and oftentimes it isn't, you know, just some spotlights, mm -hmm. right? Just twenty spotlights on something. It's much more subtle and much more controlled and thoughtful use. Lighting of light. beauty comes from contrast. There's no other way to explain yeah. it. It, yeah, it comes really from a, a, yeah. playing with contrast. And and the different amounts of light, different colors of light, um, you yeah, know, absolutely. and that you're you're absolutely yeah. right. Like there there is something beautiful about floating on a boat um, in you know in Lake Ontario and Toronto and just looking at the skyline. It is sublime. It is mm -hmm. beautiful in its own mm -hmm. its own way. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, the pro the proliferation of it, you know, everywhere is not. You know, I think mm -hmm. there is a there is some we can get after we can get to that middle ground. I don't think it's a coincidence, Taylor, that there's a bunch of Canucks working on this issue. I think Kaiba's <laughs> Canadian too, isn't he? I think so. I believe. I think yeah. I yeah. think he's a Canuck too. See, I, I I I'm telling you. I mean, there's a lot of and you hear a lot of people from places like Colorado or Montana that are into this issue as well, where there are areas that they yeah. have access and to darkness. And, you know, and I think this is what I think you hit a good point earlier that sometimes it is this 
experience that when you that you have right and i think you know oftentimes when you when you talk to dark sky advocates or people who work in this area it is these experiences right and in this the profound effect that it can have and then yeah and then it's a sort of yeah how can we get this experience into cities what does it mean to have something at least close to this experience for for people who live in cities and maybe almost never leave these downtown mm -hmm. cores of these giant metropolitan cities, right? And especially, you know, this is going to be a century of urbanization, right? By all accounts, by 2050, two thirds of humans are going to be living in cities. So, you know, in tandem with the preservation of dark sky reserves and parks, absolutely important, critical issue. We also need to turn our attention to cities and the places that we actually spend our lives and ask what could it actually mean to bring darkness back into the cities uh, and design for and with uh, darkness in our urban spaces. Dr. Taylor Stone, we've spoken for almost an hour. I can't believe it, Scott. Sorry, bud. The, start, uh, the uh, Restoring Darkness podcast is might just be an hour-long show. I don't, there's nothing we can do about it. Can't keep it to 40 minutes. Um, you know, and uh, so the listeners are just going to have to put up with it. I can't handle it. I can't do it in 40 minutes. Uh, any final thoughts? I think that was a good final thought, but do you have anything else um, for the Restoring Darkness listeners? Yeah. Um, maybe just a final thought to build on that is just to say, yeah, we can see these questions and, and problems of light pollution, I mean, it is a problem, um, but we can also see it as an opportunity to mm -hmm. rethink and reimagine how mm -hmm. and why we light our cities at night. And those lighting people listening in this show um, is focused on the lighting industry. And, and I'll just finish with this. Guys, this represents gals out there. This represents the single biggest opportunity for the lighting business, not health effects, and if you're into lighting controls, this is the best place for lighting controls. There's no better place for it whatsoever than to deploy lighting controls into the municipal environments. Absolutely the case is there for it. You can keep searching in the interior environment. I know I'm on the streets every day selling lights to people. Existing buildings are not that interested in advanced lighting controls in their building inside. They're just not interested in it. Customers don't want to buy it. But you know what? Why don't we start thinking about the outdoors? Why don't we start thinking about the municipalities for that respect? You've made it with us 52 minutes. If you have, thanks for listening. Love you guys. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma. Illuminating the pursuit of darkness.